for joining us on this week's episode of, of the Gateway to the Smokies. This podcast is about America's most visited national park, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding towns. This area is filled with ancient natural beauty, a deep storied history, and rich mountain cultures that we explore with weekly episodes. I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, a man of the world, but also with deep roots in these mountains. My family has lived in the Great Smokies for over 200 years. My business is in travel, but my heart is in culture. Today's podcast is about Western Carolina University's Mountain Heritage Initiatives. Uh, but first, let's talk about our sponsors. So imagine a place evocative of motor courts of the past, yet modern and vibrant with a chic Appalachian feel. A place for adventure and for relaxation. Imagine a place where you can fish in a mountain heritage trout stream, grill the catch on a fire, and eat accompanied by fine wine or craft beers. Imagine a place with old-time music and world cultural sounds. Imagine a place with the amenities of an old country inn. There is no other place like the Meadowlark Motel in Maggie Valley, North Carolina. Your Smoky Mountain adventure starts with where you stay. Smokiesadventures.com. Smokiesadventure.com. It's plural on the Smokies, singular on the adventure. Information and listings about the Smokies. We have hiking and wedding venues, books, trail maps, trail maps and resources, and guides for hiking in the mountains. The emphasis of the Smokies adventure is outdoor recreation, outdoor life events and adventures, along with providing information on lodging, family entertainment, events, conventions, honeymoons, and more. Its goal is to become the leading information portal of the Smoky Mountains. Couple several upcoming events for the, the Meadowlark Motel that you might be want to be aware of is we're going to have an Appalachian Thanksgiving meal on on on, uh, on, on Thanksgiving featuring traditional American fare, but also having things like uh, game meat chili and butternut squash stuffed with vegetarian entrees. Um, you know, coconut cream pie, banana banana pudding. You know, elderberry cranberry sauce. All sorts of good stuff. We're also going to have a campfire Christmas before Christmas on December 18th. And then coming up on January 25th, uh, a week-long celebration leading, uh, leading to a dinner on January 25th, uh, celebrating the Scottish poet Robert Burns and a traditional Robert Burns celebration, which is a revolved in raucous event, if I can say so myself. Uh, not to be missed. So, um, Our guest today is Pam Meister, all right, who is the uh, director of the Western Carolina Mountain Heritage Center in, in, at Western Carolina University in Cullowee, North Carolina. She is, has a long history as, a, 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 as, a, as the top of organizations of multiple uh, museums and colleges in the Southeast. She's also one of the co-founders of the, uh, the Mountain Heritage Day uh, which usually ends in the last week of September, which is one of the Southeast top premier uh, uh, music and heritage events. Hello, Pam. Hi, Joseph. How are you doing? 
How did I do in that bio? So somehow they erased the bio here, so I had to do it from memory. <laughs> whoops, whoops, not bad, except that I was not the co-founder of Mountain Heritage Day. Mountain Heritage Day actually started in 1974 with the inauguration of the new chancellor, Harold Cotton Robinson, who was a proud native of Bandana, North Carolina, and decided that he didn't just want a pokey old um, academic procession to um, celebrate his inauguration as chancellor. He wanted a good old fashioned hoedown with barbecue and square dancing and music. And they decided to do it ever after. And the only year they ever, ever missed since then was 2020. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. <laughs> who knew that 2020 would ever happen? <laughs> yeah, really, really. But yeah, so I can't claim to flight to, to yeah. uh, um, founding that one. But boy, I have really enjoyed working on it for the well, past. I just, I, I just, I just claimed it for you. So we'll, we'll, just, we'll, we'll edit out the part where you deny it and then you can own it forever. All right. No, All right. <laughs> so you grew up in Louisiana and then went to the college at the University of New Orleans where you got a BA in theater and then on to graduate school at the University of Georgia where you got an MFA in arts management. So let me, I know you're a museum professional, but did you ever get to pursue your interest in theater? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I actually got serious about theater when I was 15 years old. And in New Orleans, there was um, a really good regional repertory theater. You know, there was a, a, a set of, of regional theaters that were founded in the mid 70s. And um, so uh, they had a, a teenage volunteer program and I was involved with that. And um, we did, you know, any kind of work they threw at us. And in return, they let us sit in on rehearsals and things like that. And so got to see the workings of a fully professional theater from behind the scenes very early. And, you know, it was strange. I was inspired with theater. Um, I remember vividly going to see um, my first Broadway road show in New Orleans, which was Man of La Mancha. And, oh, man, you know, they sang The Impossible Dream, and it was Jose Ferrar in that role. Oh, wow. And I was yeah. just like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> but, you know, I never really wanted to be up there on that stage singing. My impulse was, this theater stuff is really important. I want to make it happen. I think I was a born producer. So uh... Never, you know, was much of, um, you know, a performer uh, and my career aspirations when I was at the University of Georgia were to work as a stage manager and a theatrical designer and costumer. And I really did that. And, um, you know, both did paying jobs. Actually, um, you know, one of the ways I made money when I was in college was working in a costume shop. So I'm a pretty good seamstress uh, to this day, I must say. Wow. Well, I, well, you know, I can, I mean, you know, I started out doing some theater in Durham, North Carolina, and ended up uh, doing some on the stage in Philly. And I even got to do some performances in New York City way back Woo! in the day. Well, I never was anything. I, my claim to fame is I got to do a performance in CBGB's and the kitchen sort of performance art sort of stuff, but they're pretty Oh, nice. well, that's, that sounds like loads that's of fun. fun. But, uh, you know, the, the biggest thing that I, I know is that a good stage manager is indispensable for a production right it's like and, it, it, and 
that organizational skills and that kind of make people do what you need them to do um, works really well in a lot of facets of the performing arts and also in museums. So, in business too, if you don't have that one person that coordinates all the traffic, you just go uh-huh. you're just going nowhere. So what was your uh, what was your big first job out of college? <laughs> um, this is pretty funny. Um, I, I went to work for New Orleans has um, a pretty or did at the time a pretty big military presence. I went to work for um, the Naval Air Station as their visual merchandising manager. And again, the design skills there. So I was in charge of um, their post exchange, all of their store decor and display. And there was a small print shop and I had an employee that I supervised. And so we did all of the store decoration and display and um, we also did special events for the stores like Santa Claus and the Easter Parade and stuff like that. So it was a pretty, pretty cool job. Um, and uh, a nice thing about it, too, is that um, they sent me um, to the Brooklyn Navy Yard um, to learn for like a, a week and a half course in window display and, you know, mannequin. Oh and all that kind of stuff and what happened with that was I I also you know this is what you do when you're 21 years old right yeah so I this is a day job I have an evening job where I'm moonlighting at a local dinner theater and remember this is like 1977's dinner theaters were right right and um and so I'm um um the wardrobe person at the dinner theater the grapevine I hear that this um you know, kind of upstart television um, show has decided to come to New Orleans during Mardi Gras um, to do their first television special, and they were looking for local crew members. Well, that upstart television show was Saturday Night Live, <laughs> first season. And um, wow. so it's Mardi Gras, and here comes Chevy Chase and John Belushi and Lorraine Newman, the whole wow. The Radner. And, you know, they're like, you know, typical television movie people, the world's going to stop for them. Well, in New Orleans, Mardi Gras don't stop for nobody. No. <laughs> so um, there it turns out for the local P and I was hired, you know, to be a crew member. So I took vacation time from my day job and, you know, went to work for Saturday Night Live. And my biggest um, attraction was being a native daughter. I knew my way around the French Quarter. And of course, they block off the streets for the Mardi Gras parades and they couldn't get their equipment through and stuff. And I could also take them to the nearest bar, which is very important to that group. Oh, very important. (laughs) So anyway, um, we had a great time. I loved working with Saturday Night Live and, you know, got be kind of chummy with them and they said well you know what's next for you and I said well this is exciting I'm going to the Brooklyn Navy Yard to learn how to dress mannequins and they said hey we'll give you tickets to our next show in New York so (laughs) when I went to New York I had tickets to the Saturday Night Live show and I remember the kinks were the band that played for that oh my god you got a great experience and so that was my best first year out of work experience well, that's 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 an incredible first year experience. Everybody dreams to have that kind of experience, you know. SNL to this day is, you know, even from from then on till this day, it's like one of the most impossible tickets to get, 
right? So yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, I, that's amazing. And my wife got to play on Saturday Night Live, and I had an impossible job to get tickets there, but I somehow managed to do it within a week's notice. Uh, but it was like uh, I had to pull in every favor string I ever got in my life, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and sign things in blood uh, yeah. to get to get some tickets onto there. So, but uh, so you know, we're gonna take a break right now, all right, and we're gonna get into your uh, your museum professional career when we go back. <laughs> all right, sound good? Sounds great. Hey, this is Joseph Franklin McElroy back with the Gateway to the Smokies podcast and my guest, Pam Meister. So, Pam, when did you, uh, when did you, after SNL and after the Brooklyn Navy Yard, when, how did you end up getting into the museum professional career? Well, it, it was a while later. Um, after that year in, in New Orleans, I decided I was going to blow pokey old New Orleans and go to Hollywood. So I went out there for a year and worked, but I really missed the South. And so wended my way back and um, ended up reconnecting with my mentors from University of New Orleans who had moved on to the University of Georgia, because by that time, working out in Los Angeles, and it was strange, you know, movie capital of the world, I worked in live theater the entire year I was there. And um, when I was doing that, you know, I kept looking around at the theater I was working in and going, you know, I'd really like to run this theater. I bet I could run this theater and not just the stage. Um, wonder how I could do that. Maybe there's a college program that would teach me to do that. So I was checking out colleges and, you know, talking to them about, but, you know, this was the dark ages and there were very few, um, you know, theater management program, arts management programs. Mm -hmm. So I was back in New Orleans and like I said, reconnecting with my mentors who had moved on to Georgia. And they said, well, what are you up to? And I said, I'm trying to find a college program where I could learn to run theaters. And they said, Pam, guess what? We want <laughs> a program like that here at the University of Georgia. And basically we need a guinea pig. How'd you like to come on? You can be a graduate assistant and, um, you know, we'll pay for your education. Oh, and that didn't suck. <laughs> I think I write that a lot. <laughs> so I went to the University of New Orleans and did that MFA, which included um, University of Georgia, right? Internship at the Alliance Theater in Atlanta, and um, you know, got to use my stage management skills and things like that. Basically, worked all over the place. Um, and uh, when I graduated, um, I had, amongst the things I'd done at the University of Georgia, was taken a tutorial about grants writing and wrote a grant to the National Endowment for the Arts, basically as practice um, for, um, they had at that point in time, an arts management fellowship program. And I was finishing up my graduate career in Italy because UGA had a studies abroad program and um, they wanted a theater component. And so I was able to stage manage um, for an Italian theater company in Cortona, Italy. Um, <laughs> came back from that and boom, there was a letter from the National Endowment for the Arts saying, we tried to get hold of you, but we were told you were in Europe. Um, 
you want a fellowship. And so once again, you know, old Pam goes, yeah, I would love to do that. So then I went to Washington, D.C. and spent a year with the National Endowment for the Arts, which was really neat. Um, and um, uh, however, after that year, for the first time, um, our dear North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms was attempting to abolish National Endowment for the oh, Arts. Uh... So I thought, you know, Maybe it's time to move on and, and get a get a job. Let's see what we can do. <laughs> I ended up back in Atlanta through connections I had made with the Alliance, uh, managing a modern dance company, the Carl Ratcliffe Dance Theater. So I did that from 1981 to 1985. And um, managing a modern dance company in Atlanta, which back in the early 80s was still a pretty conservative place. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a burnout job. And so when my old buddies at the University of Georgia called and said, guess what, Pam, Um, we're going down to Jekyll Island, Georgia to run an outdoor musical comedy festival. How'd you like to come along as a (laughs) manager? Once again, you know, can you, is there a thread in this? I am always the one people offer me these crazy propositions and I always say yes. Um, so, it's so like, you're very good at improv. Let's go to Barrier <laughs> Island and, and, and run, a, run an outdoor yeah. theater company. And um, it so happened that the theater, you know, Jekyll Island has a National Historic Landmark District. It was owned by a group of ultra rich people, um, you know, William Rockefeller, Joseph Pulitzer, J.P. Morgan, people like that with these little cottages there. Um, and um, so the actors for the company were housed in one of the historic buildings. And so one of the things I was was in charge of keeping this historic building pristine and not letting the actors mess it up. And so I became, had a close and cordial relationship to the museum director there who introduced me to a neighboring museum director um, who had a museum in Waycross, Georgia, which is like not quite an hour's drive inland from the coast there. And at the end of the summer, because I had quit my job with the dance theater to take this and was just, you know, kind of in denial about, oh God, I need to get my resume out. What am I going to do? And so Bill Martin, the Waycross Museum director said, Pam, why don't you come work for me? And I said, Bill, I love museums, but you know, I'm a performing arts person. I don't know anything about museums. He said, you have an MFA in arts management. It's those skills that um, I need. And also your personality. Um, I, I think the last person he worked with, he didn't get along too well. He said, I know you. I know we can work together harmoniously. Come to Waycross. You've never lived in a really small town or worked in a museum. This will be fun. Guess what Pam said? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I know so, it kind of pre-looking at your questions that you were asking about culture shock, but um, I, I didn't have any culture shock about coming to the mountains because I had come to the mountains a lot, but right. real culture shock in Waycross, Georgia. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the kind of place where if they're polite to you, they say, um, and what is your church home? And <laughs> if they're not polite to you, they say, do you call Jesus Christ your savior? 
And well, I was just yeah, like, what? Yeah, it I mean, can be a very culture. I grew up sort of in that environment. I come from originally a very small town and area. Yeah. I understand. But then, so now you're in the museum world. So, so now I'm the, in the uh, museum world. And, yeah, and, and you go through a few places, right? And you ended up executive director of the, the South Carolina Up Country Museum. And you know what I found? You co-created a presentation at the South Carolina Federation of Museums called Leadership in Museums, Director's Words of Wisdom. And the brief, wrote, the brief was, the role of museum directors change as quickly as the prerequisites for the job. So what, what did you talk about then and how is it different now? What, is the, what, what, what are the challenges you face and skills and training that, are, uh, that, that have served you well over the years? Oh, well, um, you know, the world has, as you know, profoundly changed in the past few years. Um, I mean, it is a whole new ballpark right now. But when you get right down to it, you know, particularly, I think, people who work in museums and all people, not just directors, but I am firmly convinced that everybody who really resonates with museums and is happy working in them is a lifelong learner. You have to go, oh, goody, I'm going to learn something new today. Um, I think everyone who works in a museum has to really believe in the museum's mission, which is usually some variation of we want to preserve history and culture we want to connect with our community. We want to enrich and serve our community. And we want to educate. I think, you know, that's all of that kind of thing. We're all just big old do-gooders do at heart. And we're fascinated with learning new things. And we want other people to be fascinated along with us. Now, when you get to the museum director set of skills, um, you know, you really... There are some museum directors, maybe, who are not people persons, but mostly you have to be a connector, you have to be a leader, you have to be a negotiator, um, and uh, you have to have a lot of energy. Cool. <laughs> well, you know, when you were when you were also at the, I, I think the, I think there was a lot of things you were presaging in your in your time at the that museum, because you had some other quotes, I thought, and I, I thought they were all interesting. You were uh, quoted online talking about a, a South Carolina country show saying, we want to show how engaging and entertaining and also thought provoking a museum can be. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's a little different, you know, or that early on, you know, going from showing knowledge to actually thinking about in terms of uh, and engagement and entertaining and maybe in some cases have gone to excess, excess in these days of the, the spectacle but what efforts were you making then and, and what are and how has that subsequently become more a part of your career well um a little background about the upcountry history museum i came to that museum five months before the museum was scheduled to open the building had been built for five years. And then the people who were planning it had sticker shock about what professionally designed museum exhibits cost. And it took them several years to get the money to put together a set of exhibits, which they did in conjunction with historians, but not any practicing 
museum professionals. And so um, they're getting close to opening and they kind of realized, oh, we need somebody to um, like hire a staff and tell us how to operate this thing and, um, you know, kind of activate the machine. So enter Pam with another crazy proposition. And I thought, you know, I've never opened a museum before. This would be an interesting challenge. I didn't sleep for about a year, um, but it was like a real, real fast track. And I have something, I, I'm not sure if this will show up, but I have a picture of the atrium of this museum. Can you see? Yes. Yeah, we can get it. Uh, and if you send me the picture, I'll put it up on the website. All right. Okay, well, it is, it's the most dramatic museum you've ever seen. It looks like a stage set. And actually, they hired this fabulous lighting design firm where all of the principals came out of the theater world. And so the lighting and the idea was that you walked into this atrium and there would be a sound and light show that would take you in like three and a half minutes through 300 years of upcountry South Carolina history. It was amazing. That's great. Amazing. And so I came in in time to help that crew get that thing activated. And it had um, like, it was computer activated and things like that. And so it had some built-in drama going on. Also, there were these really beautiful um, sculptural statues throughout the museum. The one in that particular picture, there's a pig drover coming around because (laughs) the great wagon road goes through that area. Um, So you really, you really, you really um, were able to uh, manage that whole uh, aspect of pre- making it engaging and, and it really spoke to me. It yeah. really spoke to me. But the, the architects did a very good job of you know kind of forging a path through the whole thing. But yeah. what I did, you know, after you know learning and recruiting a staff and all of us learning how to work this technology. Um, was um, some of the programming we did. My favorite programming, Joseph, and you will love this too, is this museum was just crying for a kid's sleepover where the exhibits came to life. There you go. My kids would love that sort of thing. We did that. Wow. All right. Well, we have to take a break now. That gives me a wonderful image and aspiration when we go away. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the, the, the get into the mountain heritage stuff. Howdy, this is Joseph Franklin McElroy back with the Gateway to the Smokies podcast. My guest, Pam Meister. So Pam, we got to fast forward. You uh, went through the Atlanta History Center, and then you were the president and CEO of the Charlotte Museum of History, among many other wonderful uh, accomplishments in the museum industry. So when what question was asked of you that you said yes to that brought you to Western Carolina University? (laughs) Well, at that point in time, um, I was back in Atlanta at the Atlanta History Center 
um, creating a new business model for the Regional Museum Association. Um, and uh, so um, had an office at the Atlanta History Center and was in touch with people all over the Southeast and had a phone call one day from Scott Filia, who was then the director of the Mountain Heritage Center and um, who I had known through professional development um, activities um, through the Southeastern Museums Conference. So he called and said, hi, Pam, how you doing? And I said, I'm doing great. You know, we're, we're working on, um, you know, moving this regional association um, into the Atlanta History Center and working on a management agreement, and it's going really well. And he said, well, I have a favor to ask of you. I really need to fill a key position, and I need your help. And I said, sure, no problem. You know, SEMC has a great job board. We can get that out there and, you know, send it out to, you know, music professionals in the 12 southeastern states. And he said, no, I really want your personal connections. Let me tell you about this job. We're looking for a curator for the Mountain Heritage Center and proceeds to tell me that it's all about developing exhibits and working with students. Well, the last thing on my career wish list was to have a job because by this point in time, I had taught in several museum studies program in Charlotte and in Atlanta area, and I really loved working with students. And of course, at all the various museums I worked, I had supervised interns. So I really wanted to be involved with training the next generation as a big part of my job instead of just sort of a sideline. And so I, I, I was thinking about it. And then I thought, maybe I shouldn't say it to Scott. And so but I thought about it and then I said, oh, well, shoot, why not? Hey, Scott, you know, how would you, what would you say? Do you think it's a conflict of interests given that, you know, we know each other and we work together? If I applied for that job, he's like, oh my God, apply for it right now. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I did. And so I went to the Mountain Heritage Center, not as director but as curator, my idea being, I'm going to leave all that boring administrative stuff behind and just do the stuff that I think is most fun in the world, creating exhibits and, and teaching. Uh, but and, they found out uh, you could do stuff. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that worked for, um, oh, a good four years. Um, and then Scott, unfortunately, had some health challenges and um, really felt that he needed to step down and just go back into full-time faculty work. So boom, I became interim director and I kept being interim director and interim director. And finally they said, Pam, we would really like to make you permanent. <laughs> <laughs> and so, that's what Pam said. <laughs> so you, you, the Mountain Heritage Center puts on the, the, we already talked about it, the Mountain Heritage Day, which was going on since yeah. 74. So I guess you, took the Mountain Heritage Center, took over that responsibility. And it's like one of the top 20 events in the Southeast with live entertainment, 130 plus food and craft vendors, tons of activities and kids stuff and performances and demonstrations, demonstrating South, Southern Appalachian mountain culture. And it's typically held in the last weekend of September and is always right. free to the public, right? That's right. So uh, what... 
what are you involved in in uh, in in planning that and what is involved in putting it on is it a big it, it is a big, big deal, and it's it's a university-wide event. Um, over the years, it's really changed a lot. You know, um, back in 2014, Mount Heritage Day had its 40th anniversary, and so I created an exhibit about the history of Mountain Heritage Day. So um, it started out, you know, back in Cotton Robinson's day with him pulling together a steering committee of faculty and staff at the university who then, you know, kind of spread it out and made it happen with the help of a lot of community um, volunteers and sponsors too. And then over the years, um, it shifted to... Um, management, when I very first came in, the Mountain Heritage Center really was sort of the lead entity. And there was a, a position on our staff called Mountain Heritage Day Coordinator. And that's what that person did was just year round work wow. Mountain Heritage Day. But um, in the course of my, and I just had my 11th anniversary with um, Western Carolina University yesterday. It's been 11. Fabulous. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in the course of my tenure there, um, it shifted to the university administration had evolved so that there was this whole office of special events under the university chief of staff. And so the, the main coordination of the festival including like the sponsorships and um, a lot of the logistics um, shifted over to them. But the Mountain Heritage Center still to this day is very, very involved in the performers, the demonstrators, um, all of the activities that go on around Mountain Heritage. Um, and um, also, another thing that we are totally involved in now is the Mountain Heritage Awards as well, of course, is something that I just love so much that every year we publicly acknowledge a person and an organization for some very special aspect of cultural preservation. That's great. I also love that you involve, you know, it's not just about Scotch-Irish settlers, it's also about the Cherokee and African American cultures and other cultures. Um, what are the types of what are, you know? You mentioned what kind of the types of things that you do to represent the, that diversity. And you know, again, that's been built in there from the very, very beginning, which I think is absolutely wonderful. One of the things that really blew me away when I first started hearing about the festival was the fact that they have Cherokee stickball games smack in the middle of the festival. And, um, you know, really serious, competitive games. And they have a narrator there who explains what's going on. And, um, you know, we have also always had, of course, who wouldn't? I mean, the Cherokee craftspeople oh, yeah. are oh, amazing, are just oh, totally yeah. amazing. And, um, you know, if you have craftspeople of that caliber sitting basically on your doorstep, of course you would invite them to uh, exactly. oh. be part of the festival. And um, same thing with 
um, African-American community members, because although the percentage of African-American residents, longtime residents of this region, is maybe not as great as it would be like down in the coast, but these are people who have been here, their families have been here for hundreds of years, mm -hmm. and um, they have fabulous history and traditions and food to share. Things we're well, really I, I read a thing where you talked about uh, the history of barbecue, right? Oh, yeah. And you said barbecue as we know it would not exist without African American men, right? Because of that's the, right. They, 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 they the pit the, masters, yeah. 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 And again, it's one of those, you know, grilling meat over a slow fire is a multicultural activity. You can find this in several different cultures, but certainly the American manifestation has to do with Southern African-Americans and it's spread out from there. And, um, you know, I, for one, am very grateful for that tradition but yeah, my friends at um, Scotts Creek Liberty Baptist Church were back at this year's Mountain Heritage Day with their fish fry. So we were mm. have that, and we had Pat Calhoun's um, um, Indian fry bread from Cherokee. Uh -huh. So again, you know, we are um, that you're doing well. You're doing well. So speaks to but, a lot of us. So the Mountain Heritage Day is part of actually a bigger a bigger thing, which is the West the Mountain Heritage Center at Western Carolina University. Um, and um, what what is do you think the overall mission of the, the 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 whole center? I can tell it to you exactly. Um, Mountain Heritage Center is WCU's Museum of Appalachian History and Culture, which we celebrate, collect, and preserve. And what we do with that stuff is we connect people with local history. We build bridges between the university and the community, and we serve as a cultural resource for the region. That's mm -hmm. what we are and what we do. But, you know, I, I'm impressed. I've read a couple of things that really impressed me because you not only celebrate heritage, but you also challenge the heritage, right? Like, for example, in 2020, you had an exhibit titled Rightfully Ours, Women's Suffrage in Western North Carolina which featured three parts focusing on the national struggle for voting rights, local suffragists, and on-capping voters. And at the time, you said the women's suffrage movement ultimately became a state rights issue. You cannot talk about the movement without take, talking about Reconstruction, Jim Crow laws, and the racist aspects of this movement. That's really a strong statement uh, that's it's even more about, it's, it's not, it's, that, you know, celebrates what we've done, but also challenges what, what, what happened, right? So, yes, uh, uh, and there is equal, you know, celebration and challenge because, you know, once the 19th Amendment was passed, the very first female um, uh, state senator and state um, legislator um, came from Western North Carolina, you know, our first Senator was Gil Gertrude Dills McKee from Dillsboro and then Silva, North Carolina. And um, our first um, uh, General Assembly member from um, the House side was um, Lillian Exum Clement, who wow. was from Bumpkin. Bumpkin. Bump <laughs> it's hard to say. It's <laughs> really hard to say. Buncombe County. Um, well, listen, and, 
Well, we have and to she was it. also, before she, you know, went into politics, um, she was a lawyer and um, was passed the, the law um, bar with the highest score of wow. one in her entire class. It was the first woman to hang out her shingle without male partners. So, so we, we have to take a break. I might mention breakers. I have to mention that my 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 grandmother was the first woman broker in the Western North Carolina, but uh, so I have oh so I've got written up papers at the time and stuff like that. But uh, we have to take a break now, and when we come back, we'll finish up a little bit more about some of the exhibits, and then uh, you know what's your, your your ideas of things to do in the mountains. <laughs> Howdy, this is Joseph Franklin McElroy, back with the Gateway to the Smokies podcast with my guest, Pam Meister. So Pam, you were kind enough to help us install the traveling set of panels of the Plot Hounds history at our own Metal Ark Smoky Mountain Heritage Center. And I really want to thank you for that. Um, you had a big show about the Plot Hounds. Why did that happen? Again, um, that was a little right before my time. Um, I unfortunately um, was not the one to collaborate with Bob on that wonderful exhibit, but my colleague Peter, who is still there, was involved with that, as was the previous curator. And, um, you know, that is a fabulous exhibit, and um, I really loved it when the plot fest was going full tilt in um, at the Maggie Valley Festival Fairgrounds because that inspired us to create a version of that exhibit which was designed to hang on a chain link fence. So we would take our oh, um, wow, that's great. <laughs> version of the exhibit hanging on the fence real early in the morning of that festival. And then all the plot hound owners would come and sit their dogs in front of the exhibit and take selfies with the dog. And um, we, we just love that so much. Now there is audience engagement for you. Oh yeah. Well, you know, we're going to, we're going to have uh, the plot fest reunion. We had the first one this year. We're going to have it again. Uh, first week of June. And we're actually going to have a, the, the, the UKC uh, judging of, of plot hounds. But uh, I, you made a traveling show out of, the, out of, out of that. And Absolutely. Is that, still, is that still going on? Yes, and it's really popular at other festivals. And, um, you know, Bob Plot is a total example of the incredible local resources we have around here and how invariably generous people are about sharing their family traditions, their specialized knowledge. And then we try to serve as a platform for these wonderful people and these wonderful traditions and get it out there in the world. And so that exhibit has a long and happy life. And I think it's going to keep going for a long time. People enjoy it. People just our version of it. The the, the panels really are popular at the motel. Uh, so you're a self-proclaimed Horace Kephart fanatic, <laughs> and uh, you guys have created your own, uh, uh, you, I mean, you, you actually helped us with, you had a little Kephart festival, and you brought over that wedding dress of Kephart's wife, which was spectacular, uh, and, uh, and well, again, thank you for that, but you also have a Kephart archive at the Western Carolina University, what's, what, what, what is that, what, what's it? Right. What's 
Actually, that is run by our next door neighbors, um, Hunter Library's Department of Special Collections. And that archive is, um, well, the people in Ithaca might might um, not agree with me, but <laughs> it's the best kept art archive in the world because it contains 27 of Horace Kephart's original notebooks. He kept these journals in his own handwriting, which is amazing. And, you know, put all sorts of notes and photographs and clippings and things like it's an extraordinary, um, you know, record of his, his time here in the mountains and just his thought processes as he was working on all his articles and um, it's pretty amazing. And since then, of course, um, our relationship with the Kephart family and the Kephart Foundation is very cordial. And so they keep finding new nice. things and donating uh, to Western nice. Carolina University. So, and we love it. So the Mountain Heritage Center is um, the custodian of the objects because when he passed away so suddenly in that automobile accident, um, his executor, who was his friend, local businessman, I.K. Stearns, um, you know, saw to it that many of these things were preserved and um, given to Western Carolina University. And mm -hmm. so really have enough Kephart things of objects. Um, I've done two exhibits now um, over the course of the years I've been there where we actually recreated Kephart's campsite because we... Yes. That's fabulous. Tents, yeah, yeah. we have camping yeah. equipment. So there's, there's, yeah. there's, there's things people enjoy coming to see, I know very yeah. much. And now you're also another founder of the Smoky Mountains. You're digitizing the photography of Kelly Bennett. When is that going to be available for everybody to see? Well, you know, again, that is special collections. And um, Kelly Bennett was, I think, the pharmacist in Bryson City and an extremely talented amateur photography and an extreme a photographer and an extremely prolific one. That collection, they haven't given me any exact numbers, but it's multiple thousands of images. And wow. I remember from that that Kephart weekend, there were, um, I think, a dozen new images of Horace Kephart that no one had ever, ever seen before. Yeah. Particularly, he was wearing a suit in most of them, which was amazing. You know, that's not yeah. the images that we have um, in the collection at this point in time. So there's an excellent website called Horace Kephart Revealing an Enigma that is on the Hunter Library, um, uh, you know, webpage um, for the university. And if people will just Google that title, Horace Kephart Revealing an Enigma, they'll get to it. And it has an amazing array of photographs, images, and high quality photographs of the objects that we own as well. So that's if, 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 speaking to the fellow Kephart uh, fanatics out there. Look that one up. Wow. So um, quickly, we're getting close to the end here. What's next for you? And how does people find out about you and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and the, and the, uh, the collections? Um, uh, Mountain Heritage Center is moving right along. We still have our River Cane Renaissance exhibit up right now, which is something that um, melds 
biology, ecology, cultural traditions, and some really fabulous um, River Cane artifacts to talk about the history of River Cane, its cultural importance to Native people, and the ecological importance of it today as a flood barrier. So that's up right now to the end of the year. It goes on tour for two and a half years, so it'll be around in, in West Carolina. Um, next year, we have two months of um, an African-American artist, Ann Miller Woodford's um, works, and then we move on to quilts. Um, we have a fabulous oh. collection, and so we'll have quilts up March through August, and then next fall, we move back to um, discussing Native people. Um, we're having an exhibit, a traveling exhibit is coming to us called Away From Home, Native American Boarding School Stories. Which oh, wow. That's, uh, that's, an, that's a very... So yeah. big lineup for next year. Cool. And again, we are also on the WCU website. And again, mhc.wcu.edu will get you to the Mountain Heritage Center's website. Cool. And any and any uh, any Facebook page or anything for you, for you personally? Um, uh, not for me personally, but the Mountain Heritage Center has. Okay, great. Well, I want to thank you for being on this show. It's been a pleasure having you. Uh, I look forward to seeing you at the Heritage events. It's, uh, it's part of our, uh, our heritage to be involved with that. Well, I will be down the road to come and see you in Maggie Valley. And that sounds good. <laughs> we can come see us someday, too. All right. So um, this is the Gateway to the Smokies podcast. Uh, you can find more about us at gatewaytothesmokies.fun or at the see live streams of this on Facebook uh, at facebook.com slash gateway to the Smokies um podcast um i want to mention i was on the october 31st 2021 issue of the front page of the charlotte observer talking about me in the metal art so get yourself over to the website and read about it. it's a really wonderful story i think uh, you know a timely uh thing about covid and, and and hospitality um the um the um this 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 pod this podcast is carried on the talkradio.nyc network which is a great network uh, of live podcasts, 24 hours a day. Um, and it has some really interesting, lots of varied cultural and, and political and business interests. The one, the podcast after this is about New York City and, tour, and going to visit New York City. So I would love for you to stick around and listen to the next podcast and catch us next week from six to seven on Tuesday night for another great podcast episode of Gateway to the Smokies. Thank you. 